You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Guys, today is Super Bowl Sunday, but we've already gone to the Super Bowl here. Come on. It wouldn't be a sermon if I didn't have a bad pastor joke for you to start. Guys, thanks for being here. Thanks for uh, choosing to set aside some time this morning to be with us at Midtown. Kitty pools change the world. True story. Back in 1968... There was a young artist named Francois Clemens. He was just beginning his vibrant and successful career as a singer and actor. He had actually just won the Metropolitan Opera auditions in Pittsburgh, which is where he lived. And he was beginning to sing professionally all around the country. New York, LA, Washington. And in the middle of all those opportunities, he was also offered an acting role in a children's TV show that was growing in popularity in Pittsburgh at the time. The show was called Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Fred Rogers, who hosted the show and was himself a lover and writer of great music, invited Francois to play a recurring role on the show as a police officer. And on the surface, that all sounds pretty ordinary, but back in 1968, that invitation was shocking because Francois was a gay black man and Fred was a buttoned-up white Presbyterian. Those Presbys. And while the Civil Rights Act technically outlawed segregation four years earlier, many parts of American society refused to desegregate or were slow to desegregate. As it turns out, ending racism is more than just changing laws. If Francois took this job, it would lead to outcries from many who watched. He would instantly become the first African-American to have a recurring role on a children's TV show. And at first, Francois was hesitant, particularly to play the role of a cop. He said this in an interview about this moment. He said, I grew up in the ghetto, and I did not have a positive opinion of police officers. Policemen were sicking dogs and water hoses on people. But after much contemplation, he chose to take a brave and bold step. He chose to take on this job. And Officer Clemens became a part of Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. Now, about a year later, there were some stories coming out of the Deep South, where Francois was from. And despite it being against the law nationally, swimming pools down there were still being segregated. And that segregation at times was being violently enforced. There were unwritten rules established to maintain it. Not only were white people and black people not allowed to swim together, but they weren't allowed to use the same towels to dry off either. And so Francois and Fred came up with an idea. It involved a hose, a towel, and a kiddie pool. In an episode of the show, Fred's character was cooling his feet on a hot summer day when Officer Clemens approached. They spoke briefly about how hot the day was and how Fred was cooling his feet, and then Fred asked a simple question. Would you like to join me? And Officer Clemens did. He took off his shoes and his socks and joined his bare feet next to Fred's in the pool, and then the camera cut to just their naked feet in the pool together while playful piano music went in the background. And then after they conversed just a little while, Fred took his towel that was draped on his shoulder And he gave it to Officer Clemens to dry his feet. That episode, in a simple and winsome way, was a radical statement when it came to racial reconciliation in the U.S. 
Cultural commentators still refer back to it as a pivotal moment in American TV history. There had never been something shown to so broad an audience that was so simultaneously prophetic and radical, but also simple and approachable. It illustrated humility. It showed two men willing to step into the messiness of the social and ethnic divides of their time in order to teach children how to healthily care for their neighbors. And it showed that all it takes is a kiddie pool and some water to change the world. This week, we're wrapping up our teaching series here at Midtown. We're calling it Won't You Be My Neighbor? Totally ripping off Fred. That's why I felt it was fitting to end with a Fred story here in the sermon. But this story has also had me asking some important questions as we wrap up this series for myself. We've been talking a lot about what it looks like to be a good neighbor, how we love our neighbors well. But the question that I keep coming back, back to for myself is, how do I become the sort of person who has this love of neighbor just emanate from the deepest parts of me? How do I allow this to be an organic part of my heart, not just a behavior I do every once in a while, but organically bubbling up from inside me? How do I become someone who creatively loves my neighbors, doesn't just change a profile picture or read a new book, but genuinely puts their life on the line for the sake of my neighbor? Where does that sort of power come from? And as it turns out, there's another time in history where a small pool and some washing of feet changed the world. And it's ultimately when we dive into that pool that we find the transformation needed to become these sorts of people in the deepest parts of who we are. So friends, if you have a Bible, I invite you to open it with me to the Gospel of John. This is the fourth book in your New Testament, if you're flipping there. We're going to be reading from John chapter 13, starting in verse 1 and reading through verse 17. If you don't have a Bible, uh, the words are going to be behind me on the screen, so you can follow along there. Also, let me know if you don't have one. I'll get you one. I love giving away free books. It's my love language. John chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Now, before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. And during supper, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going to God, got up from the table, took off his outer robe, and tied a towel around himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus answered, you do not know now what I am doing, but later you will understand. Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, one who is bathed does not need to wash except for the feet, but is entirely clean. And you are clean, though not all of you. For he knew who was to betray him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. And after he had washed their feet, had put on his robe and had returned to the table, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for that's what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have set you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Very truly, I tell you, servants are not greater than their master, nor are messengers greater than the one who sent them. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our story starts here around a table. We mentioned last week that this is one of Jesus' favorite places to hang out all over the Gospels. He loved eating food. He was always at a meal, going to a meal, or coming from a meal. Loved a good barbecue. And here he is again. But this table was a particularly special one. John makes sure to tell us how special it was. We are moving into the Passover. This was an annual meal that all the Jewish people would celebrate every year together. It was sort of like a theological Thanksgiving where all of the ingredients told these symbolic stories. They were uh, reminders of what God had done in the people's history, God's justice and mercy and faithfulness throughout their story. And so on Passover, they would go all out. We're talking the best roast lamb like Mama used to make. We're talking homemade stew and bread enough to warm your heart as much as your stomach. Delicious herbs and spices that added flavor to life itself. And, of course, wine. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Amen? So everyone's reclining around the table. They're having a good time, good food, good drinks. They're chowing down. And then suddenly Jesus kills the vibes. He decides right here and right now is a time that he needs to teach everyone something. Classic Jesus, right? Hey, we're just having a good time eating. Hey, I've got a lesson for you. It's time to learn some things. But his teaching moment, it actually didn't pop up randomly. John tells us what prompts Jesus. In verse 1, he says, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father. So Jesus knows something that his disciples don't know. He knows that very soon he's going to be leaving them. He knows that in the coming hours he's going to be betrayed by one of his closest friends who's in the room right now looking at him. He's going to be wrongfully arrested, unjustly tried, beaten in the street by the cops, and then hung on a tree. He knows his hour has come. If you were going to die tomorrow, what would you prioritize at dinner tonight with your closest family and friends? You probably wouldn't waste time chatting about the weather or your local sports team or whether Taylor Swift is going to make it to the Super Bowl in time after coming from Tokyo. Right? That was a news article I read recently this week. Is she going to be able to make it? It was a fascination for people. Probably not what you're going to talk about on your last evening. Right? No, you're going to prioritize the things that are most important, stuff that really matters. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's embodying and telling his disciples and any of us who would follow him today what is most important. But notice how he does it. He doesn't preach a sermon here. He doesn't give them some secret spiritual knowledge. He doesn't tell them the five steps to running a successful ministry. He doesn't tell them how to win friends and influence people. He doesn't tell them what their Enneagram types are and why they matter. Sorry, Enneagram people out there. Instead, he stands up, takes off his outer robe, ties a towel around himself, pours water in a bowl, and begins to wash his disciples' feet. And for many of us, given our distance of thousands of years and miles, the revolutionary and subversive nature of his action can be lost on us. But all you need to do is look at Peter's response to see how radical this was. Do you notice that? Peter says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? He's incredulous. He can't believe it. And then when Jesus confirms that that's what he's doing, Peter says, not a chance. No way. No shot, man. The language here, it's emphatically negative. It's a bunch of negative words in a row. It's like exclamatorily, not a chance. And that should make us all ask, why? Why is Peter so upset here? I mean, he's been walking with Jesus for a while. What is making Peter so opposed to this? 
Well, it's because Jesus is acting like the lowest of slaves in his time. Slaves, back in the day, they occupied the lowest rung on the social ladder, and foot washing like this was reserved usually for them. And that's because it was a fundamentally nasty and demeaning practice. And not only because everyone was walking around in unpaved dirt and dust and was kicking up on their sweaty feet, that was true, but it was also because the sanitation services back in the day were nothing like they are today. There's actually a a biblical archaeologist who's done terrific work on this. Her name is Jody Magnus. Uh, She's devoted her career to digging up and studying the buildings and sanitation structures of the ancient world. Uh, She recently wrote an article that's just entitled, What's the Poop on Ancient Toilets and Toilet Habits? Which is a play on what's the scoop. You may not have caught that. Archaeologists shouldn't be stand-up comedians. But she's good at what she does. (laughs) What's the poop on ancient toilets? She has discovered that there were a couple different places that people would go in the ancient world when nature called. If you were wealthy, and only if you were wealthy, you'd have an outhouse of sorts. It was a hole dug into the floor of a room and then covered with a stone or wooden seat. But from what she has derived in her research, Jesus didn't frequent places that often had outhouses. He was in poorer neighborhoods. In the places that he walked, they would just use what today we would call a chamber pot, a piece of pottery, a vase they'd go in. And then, when you were done, you'd take it, you'd walk to your front door, and you'd toss it out into the road. That's how you got rid of your waste. And that's only if you were at a house. If you were out and about and didn't have a house to go to, well, you just go where you were. We actually have relics of old signs that were put up in front of homes and businesses that said, don't go here, because it was so common. So to paint the picture for you, Jesus is living in a time when people and their animals walked around unpaved roads, going wherever they wanted and tossing their waste into the streets. And everyone's wearing open-toed shoes. That's why when you showed up to someone's home, they'd tell their slaves to wash your feet. It was degrading work. You'd make someone do it who had no choice. Someone who was seen as next to nothing. That's what Jesus is doing for his disciples here. This isn't just a weird social move. This is debasing. This is humiliating. Their master and teacher and Lord, the God of the universe, stoops down and turns himself into a slave to clean the filth of his disciples. That's why Peter responds the way he does. He doesn't really see, he doesn't really get what Jesus is doing. See, what Peter expects, and what many people in his day expected from the Messiah and Lord, was a strong, dominating power. Someone who would come and overthrow Rome. Someone who would come and strengthen people, who would dominate people. But instead, he gets meek and humble service. He expected a strong king, but instead, he got a slave. He expected a general, and instead, he got a janitor. What Jesus is showing us and Peter in this passage is the true power, the power of God when it's at work in the world is not a dominating one. It is a serving one. John makes this clear when describing Jesus' posture here. He's saying that Jesus is really, really close to God. Jesus, knowing the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going to God, got it from the table. The thing that leads him to service is his nearness to God. Nearness to God means nearness to suffering humanity. He's saying, in this moment, Jesus is as close to God as he can be. He has the power of the God of the universe in his hands. And look what he does with his hands. He washes his disciples' feet. He goes low. He loves. This is who God is. This is what it looks like to be near 
to him. When God's power shows up in the world, it doesn't frequent the halls of prestige and self-importance. It washes feet. It serves the other. There's one of the early church fathers who wrote about this way back in the 5th century, Severian of Kabbalah. He said this, He who wraps the heavens in clouds wrapped round himself a towel. He who pours the water into rivers poured water into a basin. And he before whom every knee bends in heaven and on earth and under the earth knelt to wash the feet of his disciples. And Jesus goes on to tell us that this sort of power, this sort of serving power, this nearness to God through sacrificial service, it's not just something that he embodies. It's something that he's come to make sure his disciples embody as well. Verse 15, he says, I've set you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. So it's not just that Jesus gives us a great moral example, though he definitely does that. It's that he's come to transform us into the sorts of people whose hearts match his. The sorts of people who organically, from the inside out, produce this kind of radical love of neighbor. And by the way, that's always been the aim of God throughout the whole Bible. I know lots of times we can show up to church and kind of think of it as a, maybe a behavioral management sort of class where we learn how to make ourselves a little bit better a little bit by a little bit. Right? Or we make it a religious rote ritual. We show up and sing songs, we see some people we like, and it's this nice tradition that we participate in. But friends, small behavior modifications have never been the goal of God. And religion, as a social practice, strictly as a social practice, it's useless. That's why God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. What God has always been about and what Jesus came to bring is this deep inner transformation of our being, an organic love that pours forth in our lives to our neighbors. It makes us become people who look and sound and act and think like Jesus. Friends, if the church doesn't look, sound, and act and think like Jesus, then it's not being the church. And that's because God knows that how we live and move in the world, the way that we show up to people, it's an extension of our inner life and character. We live from our heart. And so if we want to become people of true life and peace and love, we've got to be people who need more than behavior modifications and rules. We need more than religious rituals. We need transformed hearts. And so here on his final night with his disciples, Jesus shows us the way to that sort of transformation. He does it in two main ways. He shows us first the characteristics of neighboring love, what it looks like, but then he also shows us the power for neighboring love, where we get this sort of power. First, the characteristics of neighboring love. Neighboring love is unbiased, not selective. It's important when we read this passage to remember who's in the room with Jesus. John actually brings it up a couple times. All of his disciples are there, which means... Judas is there. Judas, the one who walked with Jesus for multiple years, who was his close friend, trusted associate, who had seen and heard all the things that he'd done, and who in just a few hours would betray him for a small sum of money. Jesus knows that that's coming. He knows that Judas is about to do this, and his response is to wash Judas' feet, to serve him. Later on in the story, the last response that Jesus gives to Judas after the betrayal. You know what he calls Judas? Friend. Friend. Friends, neighboring love is radically impartial. 
It doesn't segment people into who we think is worthy of love and who isn't. It doesn't evaluate the other based upon the ways that we've experienced them and then dish out care based upon our own moral calculus. It sees the other only as a beloved one whom I am called to serve. The scholar William Barclay put it this way in his commentary on this passage. He said, Jesus was well aware that he was about to be betrayed. Such knowledge might so easily have turned him into bitterness and hatred, but it made his heart run out in greater love than ever. The astounding thing was that the more men hurt him, the more Jesus loved them. It's so easy and so natural to resent wrong, to grow bitter under insult and injury, but Jesus meets the greatest injury and the supreme disloyalty with the greatest humility and supreme love. And so he's prompting each of us to ask in our own lives, who might it be difficult for us to serve? Who might it be hard for us to show up to? And how do we show up to them as a neighbor, impartially? That's the first thing we see about neighboring love. Second thing we see is that it's humiliating, not self-elevating. And I use that word humiliating intentionally. Jesus is humiliating himself so that others might know true love and peace. And here's the truth, you guys. In our immediate context, we don't love that word humiliation. In our world, humiliation has negative connotations. We associate it with public embarrassment or shame. It's something to avoid at all costs. But the truest sense of the word humiliation which just means to be humbled. That's what the root of humiliation is, humility. And that's not to think badly of yourself. It's not to reduce yourself down to something worse or lower than you are. That's not what humility is. Humility just means to have an accurate view of yourself. And then out of that accurate view, to approach others and elevate them. What Jesus reveals here is that true love, true neighboring, always starts in humiliation. It begins by seeing ourselves as we are, and then placing ourselves in a position lower than the other so that they might be dignified. Humility kneels. It doesn't stand tall. It points away from itself. It doesn't show off. Just this last week, I heard a couple folks talking about this. Uh, The Grammy Awards were hosted in L.A. Anybody watch the Grammys? Music fans in the room? It's basically the time that the music industry gets together and awards all of the most creative and innovative works from that year. And award shows are always funny to me because they expose how our culture really misunderstands what humble looks like or what humility looks like. For instance, many times people will get their award, they'll walk up on the stage and they'll say, I'm just so humbled right now. That's that's not what it means to be humbled. That's not humiliating. That's not humility. That's being honored, which honored is a good thing. It's amazing you're being honored. That's not what being humbled is. Being humbled is not standing on a stage and being elevated. It's taking the space you've been elevated to and vacating it so that others might have it instead. That's what humility looks like. But this year, there was someone who won an award that I think helped reframe this for me as I was watching. Her name is Julian Baker. She's a punk rock artist. She's been in the punk rock scene for a long time. And a couple years ago, she did an interview that was remarkable. She won this year with her band, Boy Genius. They're all women, which is hilarious. Boy Genius, all women. They won Best Rock Song and Best Alternative Album. And they got their award. They gave a speech. But it reminded me of an interview she did a couple years ago describing to the New Yorker why punk rock was her genre of choice. Here's what she said. A house show feels like a true faith community. The lead singer is less than two feet away from 30 people who are screaming the same thing. Punk rock 
teaches the same inversion of power as the gospel. You learn that the coolest thing about having a microphone is turning it away from your own mouth. Guys, Jesus is punk rock. He turns the microphone away from himself that others might be seen and loved and elevated. That is what humility looks like. Paul puts it this way in Philippians 2. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, assuming human likeness. And being found in appearance as a human, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You guys, the world is already full of people who stand on their own dignity, on their own accomplishment. We don't need more of those. Social media teaches us to do that. Our workplaces teach us to do that, to prove our significance and worth. We're constantly being trained to long for prominence and significance, for notice and elevation. And it's into that sort of world, to these sorts of people, us, that the God of the universe has stepped in Jesus and showed us the true path to life. It's not self-elevation, it's self-giving. That's what we ought to practice. Finally, friends, neighboring love is messy, not pretty. Remember, all of the junk, all of the stink that covers the disciples' feet here, it's into that messiness that Jesus stepped. This wasn't a sweet, easy, clean process. It was filthy. Neighboring love like this gets messy. It gets its hands dirty. What Jesus is showing to us is that our job is to step into the messiest and most broken parts of the world to become channels of life precisely there. Soap is useless if it's not used to clean. Light is useless if it doesn't go into the dark. But it's not only that we're called to go into the mess, it's that when we go into the mess, we don't view people by their messiness, but instead by their beloved identity. That's how Jesus sees his disciples, as beloved. The ones he loves. Love is what drives him, not pity. Not looking down on others. He's not saying, man, you guys are just so vile and disgusting. It's a good thing I'm here to wash your feet. That's not Jesus' approach. He approaches them with a view that sees them as who God has made them to be. Beloved, forgiven, dignified. And so we, when we get in the messiness, we don't go down. We don't uh, elevate ourselves and we don't think, man, it's a good thing I'm around for those people. We go and dignify them and elevate them out of love. I get the privilege of being married to a woman who understands this reality really, really well. Uh, My wife, Emily, she's a nurse. And for the last seven years, she has gone into some of the messiest parts of people's lives. In the quiet of hospital rooms where no one else is watching, she cleans urine and feces off of patients who couldn't control their bladders or bowels. She treats and cares for tumors in places none of us would even dare to look. She gives medicine to folks who, out of their own frustration and cynicism, often respond to her with anger. And every day, she chooses again and again to love and dignify her neighbors in the middle of the mess. And every day when she returns home, often exhausted, sometimes frustrated, she always has a story to tell. A story about the way that the messy work she did lent dignity to the people who received it. 
She tells of the tears that spring forth from patients when they notice the radical self-sacrifice she's shown them. She tells of the long and squeezing hugs of those who walk away healed from their treatment and ring a bell on their way out. And she tells the beauty of conversing and holding the tender grief of those who are near to death and who are maybe for the first time wondering who God is and who they really are. She gets the messy, beautiful, neighboring love of Jesus. And while most of us in this room aren't nurses, we can look around our room and find all sorts of messy spaces God might be calling us to step into. In fact, the truth is that God has uniquely placed each and every one of you where you are with the gifts you have to step into the mess. And so this story should prompt a question. What are the dirty feet you might be called to wash? What are the skills you've been given to meet people there? Maybe it's walking through an addiction with someone in your family. Maybe it's loving and caring for a neighbor who's going through it right now. Maybe it's just supporting those who quietly battle loneliness and anxiety and depression. Look for the places in your life where there are dirty feet and look for the ways you can respond in your skills. Neighboring is messy, friends, and it's beautiful. So those are the characteristics of Jesus' neighboring love here. It's humiliating. It's messy. And it's impartial. It's unbiased. But finally, friends, we need to ask ourselves, how do we get the power for this sort of neighboring love. See, Jesus can always spark inspiration or conviction or encouragement for us, but an example doesn't actually give us the power to do something. Just because you know the right thing to do doesn't mean you'll do it, right? And remember Jesus' goal. It wasn't just to give us rules to live up to or an inspiring example that we, by our own moral willpower, could attain to. He came to transform our hearts. And so he shows us in this passage how we get the power to be these sorts of neighbors. Look again at his conversation with Peter. After Peter refuses his foot washing, Jesus says this, unless I wash you, you have no share with me. Do you see what he's saying? The sort of radical, life-changing peace and love that he came to bring us in the world is only available when we let him wash us. We can only become these sorts of neighbors when we let him wash us. Guys, when Jesus came to earth, he didn't say, get it together, and here's some rules about how you can do it. He said, I see you. I see your messy feet. I see all the junk that you carry with you. And I'm here to wash you. I'm here to serve you. I lay down my life for your sake. That's the point of this passage. Jesus is giving up his power, his status, his elevated role as teacher and Lord to serve. He's giving his life away. And this passage starts a long, slow walk over the next 24 hours towards the cross, where Jesus gives his life for the sake of the others. The reason that the disciples don't understand this right away is because they haven't seen Jesus die yet. They're going to get it soon once he puts his life on the line. They're going to get it soon once he rises from the grave for them. Soon enough, they'll see that true neighboring love gives its life for the sake of the other. That is God. That is ultimate truth. That is the power that can transform us. That is the power we need in our lives. And Jesus says we can only receive that if we let him wash us. That is, if we acknowledge that we are in need of washing, that we've got dirty feet. And that practice, that act of naming our dirty feet, throughout the scriptures and throughout church history, we've called it repentance, which is another one of those religious words that often can be intimidating for us. But repentance, friends, it's actually pretty simple. It just means to know that our life is broken and messy and not perfect, and that we need a radical change in the way we see God, ourselves, and others. 
It means to recognize that we've got some stuff on us. That in navigating our messy world, we've managed to pick up some of that mess. We've managed to maybe add to that mess. And repentance means to trust that when we acknowledge that dirtiness, when we allow Jesus to wash us, he actually has the power to heal and change us. That's what Peter struggles with in this passage at first. He doesn't want to acknowledge that. And I know for many of us, it's hard to acknowledge that we've got dirty feet too. Sometimes we struggle with admitting that because we just don't think we're all that dirty a lot of the time. Oh, I mean, most of us will acknowledge we're not perfect people, right? But we're definitely better than those people over there. I mean, we're doing all right. We certainly don't need something as extreme as Jesus making himself a slave, dying on a cross for us. I mean, that, maybe some really broken people need that, but like, I'm, I'm all right. I'm a good person. And sometimes we struggle on the other end of the spectrum. We actually are really, really familiar with our dirty feet, so familiar that we don't think Jesus actually has the power to forgive us. I mean, if he really knew what I had done, what I had thought, what I had said, he couldn't actually forgive us. I can't be forgiven. Friends, here's the truth. Both of those responses are rooted in arrogance. They're rooted in either too high a view of ourselves or too low a view of ourselves. And in both cases, you believe in some way that you're stronger than the grace of God. That you're either a good enough person that the cross is not needed for you, or that you're so terrible a person that the cross is not powerful enough to actually heal you. Friends, Jesus is looking right at Peter and looking at every single one of us. And he's saying clearly, if you want to become a person of love like this, if you want to be transformed in the innermost parts of who you are, you've got to let him wash you. You've got to come to him and let him change you. To take the reins in your life and trust his way and work. And once you do that, you will find God's love flooding into you and flooding out of you towards your neighbor. You guys, we need a bath. We need a baptism. We need a Super Bowl. That's what Jesus is pointing to here. The sacrament that Christians have embraced for centuries. The grand mystery that God somehow washes us clean. Puts the mess to death in us. And so as we close on this series on learning to love our neighbor, let's become people who return to the source of that love. Whether it's for the first time or the thousandth time this morning, let's bring our dirty feet to Jesus and let him wash us. Because that washing transforms us. And it will send us from here, ready to wash feet like our Lord. Let's pray.